Has it been two weeks already? Honestly, wow. Well, hey, hey uh, welcome to episode 20 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. And I guess, again, uh, this is Sean, your host. And um, I just hope that I provide something that's not too much torture for everybody to uh, enjoy. I mean, what can I say about what I've been doing lately? I did spend some considerable time playing a wonderful homebrew that uh, I'm going to be talking about in this episode, actually. And um, went to not one, but two arcades since the last episode. Spent some time at Galloping Ghost Arcade in Brookfield, Illinois, which is, I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. I don't know if they're unofficially the world's largest arcade or officially or what. But regardless, I went over there, played a few games for a couple hours. Um, I played Cubert's Cubes for the first time and uh, really enjoyed it. I, I love finally playing it on a real machine instead of MAME. And, um, what else, what else played reactor? Um, I wanted to play baby Pac-Man, but that was turned off. Uh, I guess they needed to repair it. I played Pac-Man plus for the first time in about 30 some years. And what else? Granny and the Gators, which is another pinball slash video game hybrid. In fact, it's right next to the baby Pac-Man machine. That game's gotten some flack. And the thing is, I think the problem is the, uh, the wonky control scheme on it which is uh, kind of similar to that of the game Tubin. I love that game, by the way. But it's a little bit more awkward, but I think once you get used to it, you can kind of figure out what's going on. But uh, that's, uh, that's actually, I actually had fun with that. I really enjoyed it. And uh, let's see, Two Tigers I played for the first time, and I actually prefer playing it in MAME. I don't really like controlling with that uh, steering yoke. I played Space Harrier because uh, we're talking about it on Pie Factory Podcast, so I needed to do some research and... Uh, and while I was over there, I had to pick up some kind of prize that I won because every week Thursday, you, I, I believe it is, around 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock, I don't remember, Galloping Ghost on their Facebook page, they post two trivia questions. And the first person to answer one of them correctly gets uh, a prize. Like the first person to answer question one, the first person to answer question two. I happened to see the question as soon as it was posted, so I chimed in immediately because I knew the answer to uh, question number two, I believe it was. And it was uh, every year or so, maybe not that frequently, but uh, every so often, Galloping Ghost has what they call Developer Day, where they invite a bunch of uh, classic video game developers to hang out at the arcade and do meet and greets and things. And the question was, over the various developer days that Galloping Ghost has had, which developers and designers have been to Developer Day? And you were supposed to name five. I could easily think of five of them because it was they were there the day I was there for Developer's Day. There was uh, Eugene Jarvis, who designed a lot of William stuff. He's, he's like well-known in the classic gaming industry. He was there, I think, last year, along with uh, Larry DeMar. Well, I've only been to one, so he was at the one that I went to. So uh, Larry DeMar, who worked with uh, Eugene Jarvis on a lot of games. Uh, Brian Colin from... Well, his current company is called Game Refuge, but it's basically the same team that did games like uh, uh, Rampage, Rampage World Tour, Arch Rivals, Pigskin, Sarge, Xenophobe. Let's see, there was uh, Jeff Lee who did Cubert, uh, Cubert's uh, Cubes, of course, uh, Three Stooges in Brides' Brides, and George Petro. I forgot what he worked on, but uh, 
all five of them were there that one day. So I was, e- I was easily able to rattle them off and uh, got a response later on naming, calling me out as one of the winners. So while I was at Galloping Ghost, I told the guy behind the counter, I said, oh, I'm, I also want to pick up my prize for the Thursday trivia question. He's like, okay, great. What's the prize? I said, I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, turns out the guy looked into it and found out that the prize was either a t-shirt or a day pass. And I already had a Galloping Ghost t-shirt. So I was like, you know what? Let me have a day pass, which is really cool. Because the next time I go to Galloping Ghost, I don't have to pay. So that's really cool. It saves me $20 right there. <laughs> And the following weekend, it was Underground Retrocade's fifth anniversary celebration. And I've mentioned Underground Retrocade before, well, along with Galloping Ghost. Underground Retrocade is my personal favorite place to uh, do classic arcade gaming. And uh, it's a little bit more of a drive for me to get there. But it's actually, actually, it's not bad at all. Now the, the construction on Interstate 90 is finally done. And I'm not even kidding. Interstate 90 between Rosemont, which is where O'Hare Airport is physically located, even though uh, because of some annexation and under the table dealing that uh, Richard J. Daly did back in the 50s or 60s, it's it's legally considered Chicago. But let's get real. It's in Rosemont. But uh, from Rosemont to about Schaumburg, which is northwest of there by about uh, 15 miles, I think. There has never been a day in my 42-year existence that some part of that wasn't under heavy construction until now. So I I can get to uh, Underground Retrocade in no time once I can get out of Chicago. That's the tricky part. I live pretty far east in the city, but Interstate 90, where I live, you got to go pretty far west to get there. You got to zigzag through the city grid because Chicago is made of a pretty mathematical grid and you have to kind of zigzag your way to it to get to 90 from where I live. That's actually the longest part of the trip. And then once I get on 90, I could just floor it. Well, I don't don't really floor it because uh, I don't like the thought of getting a speeding ticket, but I could just zoom out to to, uh, underground retrocade and they're right off of uh, 90. But uh, it was their fifth anniversary. Underground retrocade opened actually earlier in 2012, earlier than September. But in 2013, they moved to a new location in September. So that it was kind of their fourth anniversary in their new location, fifth anniversary overall. And uh, there is a brand new vector graphics game out, an arcade game called Cosmotrons. I don't really know much about it, but I did get a tiny glimpse of it at Midwest Gaming Classic, and it looked amazing. And the developing team from Cosmotrons, uh, the game isn't out yet, but they're demoing it. And they were supposed to be at the Underground Retrocade this past weekend to demo it. But for whatever reason, they it turned out they weren't able to make it. So I, that was a little bit of a disappointment. Um, but what they were doing at Underground Retrocade to celebrate the fifth anniversary was having a tournament based on gravity-based video games. And the games that you had to play for the tournament were Lunar Lander, which is a game I can't effing stand. I think once in my life I actually successfully landed. So there was Lunar Lander, Joust, Donkey Kong 3, which kind of is gravity-based in a way. Choplifter, which yeah, I can take early. It's kind of like, I kind of like Choplifter, but I also kind of dislike it. Because it, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Desert Strike, which I love, but... Uh, but Choplifter was on the was one of the games you're supposed to play, and also the Atari 2600 Gravatar. And Ferg had just covered Gravatar in the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast in the most recent episode. And uh, Scott, who's the owner of Underground Retrocade, told me that that was the reason that he chose that game. 
So, yeah, the five games you had to play were Donkey Kong 3, Choplifter, Lunar Lander, Joust, and Gravatar in the 2600. And that was the first time I ever played Gravatar in the 2600. I really loved it. I really did. It was great. It was a lot of fun. And um, I wasn't going to enter the tournament at all because I saw that Joust was uh, one of the games listed. And uh, I know that there are a lot of people out at Underground Retrocade who can just smoke me in Joust. Uh, particularly this one guy named Jason Latko. He's a, I think he actually owns a joust cabinet and he get in the like double digit millions. So I was like, yeah, I can't do that. And so Scott said, well, you know, it's a pro-am tournament. You could go into the amateur division. So I was like, okay, because <laughs> I'm not that good at any of those games really, but I entered it and I won, I won the uh, amateur division. So that was really cool. I don't know what the prize is, but, uh, next time I'm there, I'm supposed to pick it up. Uh, I imagine it might be a day pass or something, but, uh, I, I really don't know, but, uh, whatever it is, Hey, I don't care. It was just a lot of fun. And the, th- God, the thing about lunar lander again, I've only been able to successfully land and lunar lander once. And I figured, okay, I'm, I landed. I'm never going to play this game again. But I had to play it again when, the, when this tournament happened, and I was not able to land. The highest score I could get on Lunar Lander was 30. It's like, oh, God. And I, I heard that the runner-up in the amateur division only got 25 on that. Or was it 20 or 25? I don't, I don't remember exactly, but it's like, oh, man. <laughs> Oh, oh, speaking of Ferg, speaking of Ferg, um, I'm trying to get back in the habit of recommending other podcasts, so I'd like to do that right now. Uh, There's a podcast I only started listening to probably about two months ago, and I've really been loving it. It's called Please Stand By. It's hosted by Kevin Zerb and Ferg. They're both friends, and they both do an amazing job at this. It's Well, the actual podcast itself bills itself as, and I quote, a show about nothing and everything. And that's that's pretty accurate. There's no particular theme. Like you say, okay, well, what category does uh, Please Stand By fall into? It's like there, there is no category. It's just they get together and they talk. That's it. Uh, there are some common topics they talk about. Like from what I can tell, they always talk about classic video games and they always talk about music. And a lot of times when they talk about music, the Beatles are brought into it. So naturally, I kind of, uh, my, my ears kind of perk up and pay close attention to that. This, I shouldn't be doing this, but I listen to it at work. And the reason that I shouldn't listen to it at work is because I have to stifle myself from basically cacklingly laughing hysterically because these guys, these guys get so freaking insanely funny. And, uh, if, if you like to laugh, please give them a listen. It's uh, please stand by. I'll put a link to their website in the show notes. So give them a listen and uh, you will not regret it. I hope <laughs> if you do regret it, then you're, then you're just no fun. But um, I want to um, address some feedback that I got uh, online. Well, of course, online people don't call me on the phone, leave feedback or write letters to me or anything and leave feedback. But uh See, I heard from Atari Fever on Atari Age who says, sorry, I have no feedback on that one. He's talking about Armor Attack 2. He says, sorry, I have no feedback on that one as I don't own it yet. Next order for me. However, I'm just getting back into the 7800 after a while away from it and thus just found your podcast. Just listened to episode one, Beef Drop, and loved it. I have them all downloaded now and I'm looking forward to listening through them. Keep it up and thanks. Well, thank you so much, Atari Fever. That was very kind uh, 
kind of you to say. And I see currently playing Joust 7800. Great conversion. Great arcade conversion. Actually, you know what? I don't think there is a bad home conversion of Joust. The 2600 version is pretty good. I've briefly played the 5200 version. That was good, too. And, of course, 7800 version is great. Uh, That's a good choice to play on there. And, yeah, Armor Attack, I think, is a great game to order. Armor Attack, too. Oh, I played the original Armor Attack in Underground Retrocade again. Man, did I suck at it. it. You either have a good day or a bad day when it comes to that. There's no in between. What else did I hear back from? Oh, yeah, TrekMD on Atari.io says, um, I just listened to the episode. Nicely done, as always. And thank you so much. That's very kind. To answer your question about the Vectrex, oh, yeah, um, I had wondered aloud if on the Vectrex version, if you absolutely need the overlay in order to play it. And what's bad about the arcade version is that the the overlay isn't lit up at all. So it's hard to, like, if, if you're not in a bright surrounding, it's a difficult game to play. <laughs> But uh, so I wondered aloud, do you need the overlay to play on the Vectrex version? Because the games that I had on the Vectrex, you could play without the overlay. But um, TrekMD says to answer your question about the Vectrex version, yes, you can play without the overlay. The system forms the walls of the city so you know how to move around and protect yourself. It does look better with the overlay, though. As for Armor Attack 2, two, oh yeah, yeah, I had wondered about this because I thought Armor Attack 2 on the 7800, the two-player mode was cooperative, but in TrekMD's feedback, he said it was competitive. So I, I questioned him on that, and he says, as for Armor Attack 2, two-player mode, the players can't kill each other, but they have separate scores, so you can choose to work together and cooperate or compete for the higher score. That's why I said it's your choice, smiley face. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that, TrekMD. Um, I have not yet since tried it in two-player mode, uh, mainly because I'm only one person, and uh, sometimes I forget to test out the two-player mode, even if I'm just by myself, just to see what, what would happen. So uh, that's what I had in feedback. Thank you uh, for for writing folks uh, and the email address if you wish to contact me is homebrew78 at fab4it.com and of course you can post on atari age atari.io uh, there's a atari 7800 homebrew podcast facebook page also oh by the way speaking of facebook in case anybody wants to friend me on facebook if your name is not one that I'd likely recognize, which is probably a lot of people, actually, uh, if you could also accompany your friend request with a private message just saying, hey, I'm this is how I know you. It's from the Atari 7800 pod, uh, homebrew podcast or whatever, just so I know. And this is a classic example of uh, someone friending me that I just plain had no idea who it was. This was before I did any podcasting <laughs> on Facebook. I got a friend request one day. It was accompanied with a private message. And the message said, you don't know me and I don't know you, but I saw you posting on uh, an Atari forum and that you have an Atari 7800. And I also saw you mention that you're a Brian Wilson fan. Well, I am also a Brian Wilson fan and I have an Atari 7800 I figured it would be good to network with you, so I just wanted to uh, uh, just happen just send you a friend request, see in case see if you wanted to hook up. So I accepted, and the funny thing was, it turned out that the guy who sent me the friend request had been a regular contributor to the Doctor Demento show, which I have loved since the eighties. He's only been a, a fairly, like in the past 10 years, he's only been sending music over there. But still, I, rem- I was like, wait a minute, you're Worm Quartet. You know? <laughs> so I was like, I know your songs. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that was uh, that was nuts. But uh, 
wow, sorry to ramble on like that. Uh, you know what? Let's just get right into today's show, which is about, I suddenly forget. Oh yeah. Time Salvo. Time Salvo. But first, here's a little bit about Crossfire. The game Crossfire was designed by Jay Sullivan, and it was released by Sierra Online, first for the Apple II in 1981, and then followed shortly on other computer platforms. Now, Jay Sullivan also designed high-res soccer and high-res football in 1981 and 1983, respectively, and uh, Ken Williams worked with him on those, and he worked on Ultima II in 1983. All those were for the Apple II computer. Some people call Crossfire a clone of the arcade game Targ, but eh, I, I don't know about that. Because I can kind of see what they're getting at, but really that would be kind of like calling Pac-Man a clone of Head-On or Crash, which of course Atari 2600 people know better as Dodge'em. And because I kind of disagree with that Targ comparison, I'm not going to get into the details of Targ other than to tell you it's an Exidy game with a grid maze, much bigger than that of Crossfire, by the way, and it's uh, very, very difficult. In Crossfire, you maneuver a ship around a grid maze consisting of six rows by seven columns of black blocks outlined in blue, and the background of the maze is black. Your ship can move within five horizontal alleys, as they call them, and six vertical alleys, and you fire at various enemies. The movement around that maze is similar to that of KC Munchkin in that if you stop moving your ship, your ship actually continues to move until it gets to the next grid intersection. There are four different styles of enemies differing really only in appearance and point value. Their speed and their power are all the same, really. Seemingly, different versions of Crossfire have different sets of enemies, too. For example, the enemies in the Apple II version don't resemble the enemies that are in the Commodore 64 version. The enemies are going to appear from outside the left, the top, and the right rows of blocks, and will attempt to hunt down your ship inside the grid. To finish a level, you shoot all the enemies on the screen, and you score 10, 20, 40, or 80 points per enemy, depending on which type of enemy. If an enemy shoots or touches you, you lose a life. The game ends when you run out of lives. You get three ships plus an extra ship for every 5,000 points that you score. Four of the blocks that make up the grid, kind of near the middle of the maze, specifically the third block across and down, the fifth block across and third down, third block across and fourth down, and fifth across and four down. Wow, that sounds very clear, doesn't it? You can imagine that very clearly in your mind. <laughs> But anyway, in each of those blocks, there's a bonus item that, to me, kind of looks like an orange and white version of the mothership from Cosmic Arc. After your player shoots 12 times, regardless of hitting an enemy, either from the beginning of the level or from collecting a previous bonus, one of those bonus items is going to be released from that block into an alley, and it's going to stay there until either you collect it or you shoot five times, depending on whichever one comes first. And uh, kind of resembling how Dungeon Stalker works, another 7800 homebrew that was kind of a port of a home game, you have a limited number of shots, and once you reach that limit, you cannot fire again until you reload. At first, you can fire up to 30 times before you need to reload, but eventually that number gets smaller as you progress through the levels. Once that number starts getting smaller, it's in five-shot increments. For example, the next maximum you're going to have would be 25 shots. 
When you get down to 10 shots, there will be an indicator in the grid that looks like four white dots arranged in a diamond. Move over to those four white dots to replenish your ammunition. You can move your ship around the grid in four different directions and can fire in four different directions. On the computer-based versions of the game, you use the I, J, K, and L keys to move up, left, down, and right, respectively, and the E, S, D, and F keys to fire up, left, down, and right, respectively. And yes, that means you can move in one direction, but fire in a completely different direction, just like with Robotron 2084. Crossfire was released on many different computers. There was the Apple II, of course. There was uh, a version for the Atari 8-bit computers. And in fact, that version won a Certificate of Merit for Best Arcade or Action Computer Games at the 4th Annual Archie Awards in 1983. There was a version for the Commodore VIC-20, which was actually called Jay Sullivan's Crossfire. I'm not sure if there was a reason for that. If maybe there was another Crossfire out that was a different game. Don't know. There was a version for Commodore 64 and IBM PC and PC Jr. Remember that thing? And uh, reviews from various computer magazines at the time were mixed. And I think it was basically depending on which version of Crossfire they were reviewing at the time. And from what I can tell, many old school computer gamers consider Crossfire to be an essential piece of classic computer gaming. But to be... Perfectly honest, I never heard of it personally until I researched for this episode. And then again, I didn't own a computer until 1988 when I got my Commodore 64C as an 8th grade graduation present, so um, I kind of missed Crossfire by about 5 years, so maybe that explains it. So now that I talked about Crossfire, let me dig into Time Salvo. See what that game is like in comparison. Alert, alert. So the world found out about Time Salvo on April 18th, 2014. Mike announced that he was working on the game, which was at the time called Salvo 2085. And it was an updated version of Crossfire written in 7800 Basic, of which, uh, by the way, he's one of the developers. So Mike posted the ROM file and the instructions and um, here's what he posted. Here, here's what he posted. Backstory. The time traveler journeyed to the year 802,701 and discovered that humanity has split into two distinct species. Gentle humanoids called the Eloi are tended to as cattle by the other species, foul underground creatures called the Morlocks. The time traveler attempted to free the Eloi from the Morlocks. Wave after wave of the evil creatures and their deadly machines moved in to destroy him, but somehow he managed to fend them all off, banishing them to eternity. Standing on the eerie quiet of the battlefield, he wondered to himself, now that the simple Eloi were free, what would become of them? Would they learn to become masters of their own fate, or would mankind's feeble destiny fade away? Deciding there was only one way to find out, the Traveler jumped into the seat of his machine and pulled the lever. Gears engaged in crystal spun as he jumped forward 10,000 years. Waves of disgust overwhelmed him as he stared at the scene. Several gray figures crouched over their frail humanoid prey which lay still on the ground. The foul Morlocks had somehow returned. In time salvo, you take control of the furious time traveler, his futile effort to break the cycle. Rage against the Morlocks. Rage against time itself. 
That's uh, pretty uh, interesting right there. And uh, the gameplay he explains, shoot the enemies and avoid being shot. Yeah, sage advice. Um, after some time passes in the level, humanoids will begin appearing. Your enemies will kill the humanoids if they touch them, but if you run into the humanoids, they will follow you. Keep them safe until the end of the level. Periodically, you will need to refuel on ammunition. An alarm will sound and you will see the ammunition on the playfield. Run across the ammunition to pick it up. If you see a smart bomb, run over to wipe out every enemy on the battlefield. Every two rounds, you'll reach the challenging stage where four waves of enemies will race across the screen in patterns. If you shoot all 44 enemies, you will earn an extra life. To move, push the joystick in the direction you want to go. To fire while remaining still, hold fire button A down and tap the joystick in the desired direction. To fire while running, hold the joystick in the desired direction and tap fire button A. You can also choose the two-stick mode from the title screen, left to move, right to fire. And by the way, I don't think those were the very first instructions. Uh, Mike actually edited that post as he progressed through the development of the game. But uh, he originally wanted to do the game in assembly. I think kind of a combination of uh, assembly and basic. But he decided to use exclusively 7800 basic to prove that you could make a good quality game with 7800 basic. And Mike was talking about how he wanted to do particle-based explosion animations, I guess maybe looking like fireworks or something. Um, he looked for software that could help him do that, but he couldn't find anything that could do exactly what he wanted. So uh, being the resourceful person that he is, he wrote his own program himself in the C programming language. And that program would simulate particle explosions, and it took advantage of the ping graphics import that's part of the 7800 basic package. That's uh, PNG, of course. On uh, July 26th of that year, Mike posted via his blog on Atari Age that he added humanoids to the game. They didn't appear originally, apparently. Humanoids wouldn't be able to be killed with enemy fire, but they could be harmed if they were touched by enemies. If you lost all your humanoids, you wouldn't lose any points, but uh, Mike hinted that that could change in the future. Mike also added a challenging stage after every two levels, and if you killed all the enemies in the challenging stage, you'd get an extra life. Atari age user Godzilla Joe suggested adding a drop-off point where you can safely deposit the rescued humanoids for a bonus or allowing the humanoids to shoot in the opposite direction of where you're shooting, kind of like having the second ship in Galaga. I guess he suggested ways to add incentive to get you to rescue the humanoids. Another Atari age user Jinx suggested, and I quote, you need bombs, Bomb bonus for each human saved. That does a Bomberman full length and width kill. Um, in case you're not familiar with Bomberman, um, it's a maze game uh, that was popular on new and slightly newer technology, like, say, Super NES. Uh, or was it on Super NES? I know it was on Super Famicom. I've actually played it on an actual Super Famicom before. Basically, like, newer Nintendo consoles, like the N64 and those things. But uh, the Smart Bomb and Bomberman, what would happen is if you used that feature, it would kill anything in its path in the maze vertically and horizontally, like basically a giant plus sign path of destruction, I guess. But uh, Mike actually liked that idea, so he implemented it. Button A would activate the Smart Bomb at this point, and Button B would fire standard shots. He wasn't too keen on the extra functionality for the humanoids, though, because, well, it would be too much happening on an already busy screen, and it would also push the limits of 7800 Basic too far. 
Mike was talking about adding a feature in which if you lose all the humanoids, the maze or city, as it were, would be destroyed and enemies would appear out of the darkness while existing enemies would become more aggressive. And I don't know how this guy's name is pronounced, but it's an Atari age user. Um, I, it, if I'm using my uh, knowledge of Germanic languages, which is not really much correctly, uh, his uh, handle is von Denefoldsk. He suggested having Robotron-style dual joystick control, and uh, Mike liked that idea. On July 31st, there was an updated version posted, and uh, that version featured some graphical glitches fixed, and also the fire buttons on the controller were flip-flops so that button B activated the smart bomb and button A acted as a fire button. And at this point, the game was now renamed Time Salvo, or simply Salvo for short. The plan was to have more games in the Time, T colon M-E, universe. Not necessarily all done by Mike, though. Uh, I don't know if there's any more in progress, by the way, but so far this is the first to be released. Spoiler alert. <laughs> September 29th, um, notice that's a huge leap, almost two complete months. The reason for that is that uh, basically life got in the way. Mike was too busy to work on his hobbies, including developing Time Salvo. But he finally found a few hours to write some code, so he added enemies that appear in the dark, like I mentioned just a few seconds ago. And he also made the humanoids appear on the screen a little bit faster than before, and he noted that there were a lot of other changes on the way. Another big leap in time, March 20th, 2015. He wasn't kidding when he called it Time Salvo, by the way. There was a new version of the ROM, and it now had a title screen and an optional Robotron-style two-joystick mode. Also, he added some support for the various high-score devices, the high-score cartridge, the Atari Vox, and the save key. On July 25th, he added speech synthesis via the Atari Vox, and he also fixed a few bugs. Weekend of October 17th was the Portland Retro Gaming Expo, which is one of the biggest video game shows in the country. October 22nd, Mike added music to the title screen and did a few bug fixes. Now flash forward to August 19th, 2016. We're now in the third calendar year of development. The enemies that resemble the brain enemies from Robotron would turn the humanoids into progs. And to compensate for the progs, and I will explain what progs are a little bit later, and to compensate for the progs, the general aggressiveness of the enemies was toned down a little bit. The Hulk character, and again I'll explain that later, Hulk character can be pushed off screen and will re-emerge on the other side. And there is a new scoring system in place. You'd score 200 points per enemy destroyed, with a bonus of 100, 200, 400, and 800 for rescued humanoids at the end of the level. There were a bunch of specialty items that uh, previously existed that I'm not really going to get into right now, or at all, actually, since they're no longer there. And Mike removed all of them except for the smart bombs. And also, Mike changed the mechanic of the smart bombs. Smart bombs no longer required a fire button. At this point, all you had to do to trigger a smart bomb was walk over it. And what was great about that was you no longer needed a two-button controller for this. So if you just wanted to use your Atari CX-40, you could use it. And also, Mike said, and I quote, minor cosmetic updates that nobody else but me will likely notice. <laughs> and uh, this version of the ROM was considered a release candidate, so Mike wanted people to try it out and report any bugs they found. 
Two days later, August 21st, Mike updated the release candidate, and he fixed a few bugs that had to do with the progs. And Mike also found that the right controller wasn't working properly because there was uh, some code conflict between the Atari Vox code and the controller code. August 26th, barring any possible bugs that might be discovered, Mike posted what he hoped was the final release candidate, and uh, that final release candidate featured some speed discrepancies between NTSC and PAL versions that Mike tweaked and tried to make them as close to each other as possible and asked for somebody with PAL hardware to compare the gameplay to that of a gameplay video that Trevor made with NTSC hardware. And also, Mike made the game slightly easier and encouraged people who thought that the game was very difficult to give it another try. October 16th, 2016, it was announced that Time Salvo, along with Froggy, Crystal Quest, and Super Circus Atari Age, would be released in November. And uh, Froggy still hasn't been released, by the way, so if you're like, wait, Froggy? Don't worry, you didn't miss it yet. It's not out yet. <laughs> Late March 2017, the games that I mentioned, minus Froggy, of course, were made, were made available for pre-order to Atari Age subscribers, and then they were shipped in June. On July 16th, Time Salvo was made available in the Atari Age store for $45, and that $45 gets you the cartridge, the manual, and the box. So, hey, there we go. That's uh, the story that I have about... Mike Sarna's development of Time Salvo. So, hey, let's talk about the actual game play. Notice I say let's, which means let us. Who's us? It's just me, this one guy. Anyway, screw it. We're going to talk about the gameplay. Of course, Time Salvo was programmed and designed by Mike Sarna, and we also must give credit to Corey Kramer, who designed all the artwork for the manual, for the box. It's really... Not just beautiful artwork, but also very entertaining in kind of a 70s Hanna-Barbera kind of way. So good job to Corey and, of course, to Mike. If you know how to play Crossfire, then you know how to play Time Salvo. If you never played Crossfire and you never played Salvo either, just what you've heard so far should be enough for you to be able to play. Well, heck, even if you didn't have any kind of background on Time Salvo at all, be it from this podcast or from Atari Age or even from Crossfire you can still pretty much figure it out, especially if you've ever played Robotron. In fact, a lot of the characters in Salvo look suspiciously close to those in Robotron 2084, which um, is not a coincidence. Mike said that he wanted to include elements in the game that would evoke classic arcade game memories, and in my opinion, he did a fantastic job of it. Now, I have to mention again, this game itself is kind of based on the Eloy versus Morlocks um, trope, I guess, from The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. And if you've never read that book, well, join the club. Neither have I. <laughs> the Eloi are the direct descendants of humans whose friendliness may have contributed to their downfall. The Morlocks are the Eloi's underground living antagonists, and the antagonistic relationship between the two species is believed to have originated from class warfare. They are pretty much the characters in Time Salvo, and in fact, the year in which Time Salvo takes place is the same year as in the Time Machine. As in Crossfire, you are in a grid maze with uh, different enemies firing at you. There are four humanoids, all of which look like Daddy from Robotron, and they all appear in the maze, and your job is to pick them up and protect them until the end of the level. 
You cannot allow these humanoids to be touched by any of the enemies, either before or after you pick them, else, or else they're going to die. If a humanoid is touched by a brain enemy, which is a basically a, wa- a walking brain, kind of like what's in Robotron, the humanoid actually becomes a reprogrammed human, or a prog, and the prog will hunt you down and try to kill you, so you must kill the prog before it gets you. When you pick up a humanoid, the humanoid's gonna follow you around the maze at about an arm's distance, give or take. Each additional humanoid you pick up will follow the previous humanoid at about the same distance, and so you're kind of making a train, and you are the locomotive, if you will. And your character acts as the locomotive, if you will. Um, If you've ever played the arcade game Flicky, it's kind of like that, if you can picture that. But you want to keep those humanoids protected as you move around the maze, because even under your control, if a humanoid is touched by an enemy, it's either dead or converted to a prog. There's another enemy called a grunt, which is similar to the grunt character in Robotron 2084. And uh, it's a red robot, and uh, I don't know if that's the intention in Time Salvo, but in Robotron 2084, grunt was an acronym that stood for Ground Roving Unit Network Terminator. There's also a Hulk, which resembles the indestructible Hulk from Robotron as well. And there are Centurions, which resemble the robots from Berserk. There are Octopods, which resemble a certain type of space invader. And, of course, there's a Morlock, which um, it might be based on an arcade game character, but I'm not really 100% sure. But based on the animation and stuff, it kind of looks like, I don't know, maybe a a character from real sports football or from one of the M network sports games. And of course your character, the time traveler looks like the protagonist in Robotron. Periodically, a smart bomb is going to show up in the maze and it's pretty easy to identify because it's, um, it's kind of bell shaped and it has the letter S on it as for smart bomb. And to activate the smart bomb, you just walk over it, and all enemies that are in play will be destroyed. The ones that are still outside the borders, they're still going to be intact. If you don't activate a smart bomb after a few seconds, it's just going to disappear. As with Crossfire, you have only a limited amount of firepower. When you get down to 10 bullets left, there's going to be an indicator on the screen, and it's uh, basically three plus signs arranged in an inverted pyramid. If you walk over that indicator, your ammunition will be replenished. And every third level is a challenge level. What happens is there are four series of 11 enemies that enter the maze and they zigzag around, and you have to shoot as many of them as possible. Interestingly, at least as far as I can tell, there's no bonus for shooting all the enemies in the challenge levels, but you don't lose a life during the challenge level, so if uh, an enemy touches you, you'll be safe. I mean, yeah, it sounds obvious you're not going to lose a life during a challenging stage, but uh, I know of at least one game in which you can lose a life in a similar kind of a stage. I think Space Duel was one of them and maybe Rally X. But anyway, you get an extra life after completing the challenge level. And now that I think of it, I don't think I talked about how many lives you get. You start with um, three lives, I think, maybe four. You know, that's a good question. I'm going to have to go back and check. Hold on a sec. Okay, you get four lives, four lives, and a bonus life for every time you finish a challenging stage. So there you have it. And I'm going to talk about how you score points in this game. You get 20 points per enemy that you kill. Pretty simple. 
The exception is progs. I believe that you do not get any points for killing a prog. Killing a prog will save your life, but you don't get any points from it. And it uh, kind of makes sense because a prog is a humanoid turned into an enemy. And that, and if you let a humanoid turn into an enemy, then uh, you shouldn't get rewarded for killing it, should you? <laughs> but you do get a bonus for every humanoid that you have rescued at the end of the level. You get 100 for the first, 200 for the second, 400 for the third, and 800 for the fourth. Naturally, the game ends when you run out of lives. And at the end of the game, you're given a rank based on your score. Ranks that I've seen include Vizier or Vizier. I'm not sure how that's pronounced, but it's V-I-Z-I-E-R. I'm going to say Vizier. Uh, there's Connecticut Yankee, McFly, my personal favorite, Time Bandit, and Looper. Uh, if you do really badly, then you are ranked a Time Corpse. I'm pretty sure there are other ranks, but quite frankly, I um, I kind of suck at this game, so I haven't seen all of them. And uh, to be honest, I have not experienced Looper either. I actually got that from Trevor's video. But uh, all in all, Time Salvo is an incredibly fun game. And by the way, by the way, I did have a question as to how the game is pronounced because it is spelled T colon M E Salvo. I was like, is it T colon me? Is it T me? Is it what? But I have heard from Mike himself that it is Time Salvo and that the colon is there as kind of a pun uh, because it's supposed to represent, like, say, an hour on the left and minutes on the right. But uh, that's what that is. It is definitely Time Salvo. But, yeah, it is so much fun. It's got some great challenges, very thoughtful mechanics. And what kills me is that it's done in 7800 basic. It just blows my mind, but I guess I shouldn't be surprised as I do believe, uh, alpha race. I think that was done in 7,800 basic too. And I thought that was a really great adaptation of Omega race, but, uh, but yeah, it just shows you if you have the slightest interest in becoming a 7,800 homebrew developer and you have any programming experience, try out 7,800 basic and see what you can do with it. And I should mention this. Um, I do like to recognize people who have, um, the, the highest scores that I could find. Uh, the thing is time salvo is too new. I haven't really, I've only seen a couple of scores and those are from demonstration videos. So, uh, unfortunately I don't have anything to report in that regard, but I can tell you this much. Um, I am terrible at this game. I hopefully will get better at it. And before I forget one thing I should mention, uh, you probably gathered this from the development segment of this, uh, episode, but, Time Salvo does take advantage of the Atari Vox in two different ways. It'll save your score and it'll generate speech as well. Unfortunately, I haven't found any videos on YouTube that demonstrate the speech synthesis. I'll try to make one. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm still behind on my YouTube channel. I keep promising videos and I never make them. But I, I'll try to make a video that has the uh, speech synthesis in it. And uh, here's the thing. The Atari Vox requires that you plug it into the right controller port on the 7800. If you don't have an Atari Vox, or if you have one, but you've used it in something other than a 7800, it's going to be a difficult fit. In fact, you won't be able to plug it directly into the port. You'll have to either remove the plastic casing on it, or if you don't want to do that, use some kind of extension cord, a nine pin extension cord. And uh, if you can just go on eBay and look for, say, like, like a Sega Genesis extension cord or Atari joystick extension cord and should do the job. I use one on mine. The one thing I haven't tried yet, and I don't think it's going to work is 
Now, the reason that I had to mention the right controller port is that if you wish to play Time Salvo with Robotron-style controls, that is a joystick in each port, obviously you're not going to be able to use the Atari Vox. I was wondering if maybe using a splitter would work if you want to use two joysticks and the Atari Vox. I haven't tried it yet, but judging from things that I've read on Atari Age and how the code works, I don't think that would actually work. I think the code specifically pulls from one and only one thing that is in the right controller port. So uh, if you find anything different, hey, feel free to let me know. But uh, that's the Time Salvo gameplay. On Facebook, I posted a couple of pictures of Time Salvo. Well, kind of in action. It was the intro screen and the high score screen when, um, let's see, what was my score? It was 3,360, which ranked me as a time bandit. (laughs) And um, Richard Grounds, commenting on Time Salvo itself, says, I like it. It's still really hard for me. I haven't had time to sit down with the manual and get some strategies down to get better at it really enjoy it. And yeah, I'm in the same boat, Richard. Thank you for your feedback, by the way. But yeah, I'm in the same boat. I haven't really spent a lot of time like reading the uh, tips and strategies section of the manual. And uh, that's probably why I can only score in the 3000s right now. In fact, like I'm looking at my scores, my scores range from 720 to 3360. (laughs) And uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it is a low scoring game. Maybe it is that challenging. But to me, it just sounds kind of pathetic. (laughs) I don't know. But thanks again, uh, Richard. On Atari Age, I heard from a user named Swami up in the uh, Twin Cities. Swami says, A plus, I agree with all the review's positives. The only addition I could have imagined to make this game better is two-player simultaneous competition in the same grid. And possibly four joysticks then? Which I suggested to the game's author as a sequel. That would really be quite an accomplishment, Swami, especially in uh, given that this is written in Atari Basic. I don't know if Basic would support that. I know it doesn't support paddles, or at least the last I checked, it didn't support paddles. I wonder how that would work, though. Oh, you know what? Do the uh, Atari Twenty Six Hundred keyboard controllers for uh, for like Basic programming those? Do those come in pairs? Because if they do, I can imagine that possibly being a way to make uh, two player mode possible just using the keys on the little keyboard controllers, one for moving, one for firing. That would be interesting. Hmm. Other than that, we'd need some kind of adapter to uh, make two players possible in each port. But thank you, thank you, thank you, Swami. And Trevor, I could always count on Trevor for some intelligent, well-thought-out comments. However, this time... I still got well-thought-out comments from Trevor, who says, A most excellent game. Off the bat, those familiar with the 8-bit classic Crossfire will notice some obvious homage to it. At times, Salvo... Oh, I see what you did there, Trevor. At times, Salvo appears as a survival shooter in a similar vein as Robotron 2084. On the other hand, it requires planning and decision-making, in many instances, including unique elements and strategies to master. Features such as ammo depletion and discerning the right moment to replenish is part of the forethought that players need to ponder. 
seeing the gauge for when the next humanoid will be released and whether or not to rescue that individual to place in tow or ignore is another matter requiring consideration. When the quote-unquote bomb appears, providing the opportunity to destroy all enemies on the playfield, there can be a risk associated with attempting to obtain it or ignoring the option completely. The diversity of enemies is fantastic, as are the details associated with them. For example, there's a triple threat in respects to the devious brains. They have the ability to shoot at or lethal touch the player. Nearly as deadly, though, is when they come in contact with the helpless humanoids. When doing so, they turn such ones into killer progs that hone in on the player. The only option with a killer prog is kill or be killed. Uh, that was my little um, addition, not Trevor's. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, emphasize it. Anyway, uh, going back to Trevor here, Trevor says, Regarding player controls, movement is in a grid-like fashion with up, down, left, right as possible paths to take dependent upon the player's position on the playfield. A player has to be careful not to align itself in the path of the enemy fire as shots race across the screen and colliding with the enemy must be avoided as well. Furthermore, Rescued humanoids in tow, saved by our hero, must not brush against enemy forces resulting in death or, as mentioned earlier, possible transformation. If all humanoids are eliminated from the level, the playfield goes dark and an indestructible hulk enemy will hunt the player down, while the other remaining enemies become more vicious in their pursuit as well. There are two distinct style methods of shooting in the game. A player can either be in motion or stationary while firing. This allows significant flexibility in gameplay handling, as does the option to play the game with one controller or two. Under two controller configurations, the left side, port 1, moves the player, while the right side, port 2, controls shooting. A special bonus or treat is present as there is an easter egg to be uncovered. Ooh. It is a very festive reward to state the least. A most standout feature of the game is the dazzling array of messages that dance and bounce upon the screen. It fuels the adrenaline and entertains the player even more so. This is especially emphasized during the bonus rounds. Messages from the top cascade down while status results soar across the screen. Also noteworthy, death explosions of characters are a sight to behold. It is almost as if the character's pixels implode on the screen. Allow the game to sit at least once for a good couple of minutes after powering the console on, or after a game completely ends, to enjoy the awesome theme music in its entirety. Perceptual tuning is showcased at some of its finest here, making it very hard to believe that this is not a pokey chip being heard, rather just Tia sound being utilized. If all of that was not enough, the game features optional Atari Vox support too, including a very healthy dose of speech in addition to saving high scores. Scoring contains an extra feature provisioning titles in accordance with the end score achieved. How many titles are stored in the game? What's the highest title that can be earned? Those questions and more beg to be answered as the player finds himself engrossed in this exciting, most outstanding library edition that should be both owned and played under the Atari 7800. Wow, this is a, an excellent review, Trevor. Thank you, thank you, thank you for that, um, as usual. And when I was reading Trevor's feedback here, all I could think of was, 
wow, and this was done in 7800 BASIC. I, I don't really know exactly how the BASIC actually works. I only looked, took a really, really tiny look at it here. Um, but uh, And I did mention that I do plan to do some kind of just, you know, a, a little chintzy 7800 homebrew that I, I don't want to put it on a cartridge. I don't want to make people pay money for it. It's just going to be a, basically a proof of concept for my own sanity, really. But um, I haven't even started the 7800 basic part of it yet. But uh, I first started learning actual programming back when home computers were the thing. And specifically when I'd be at Montgomery Wards or something, and there was a Commodore VIC-20 or Commodore 64 out on display. And uh, that was when a lot of home computers, the operating system actually was a basic language interpreter. You actually had to know a little bit of basic to run the computer at the little display tables, they would have like little, like 10 line type in programs you could put in and run. So you have an idea of what the computer could possibly do just from commands you type in. So that's really the first experience I had programming. And now I write code for a living, albeit not for games, but for websites. But one thing I do know is the common lore like from, say, the 80s to the 90s, was that BASIC is a slow language because it was usually an interpreted language, meaning that um, the computer would actually read it line by line and translate it line by line as it ran, as opposed to a compiled language such as like C or Fortran. And what that means is that before the computer would run the code, you would run something called a compiler that would translate the code from a very high-level, almost English set of commands, it would convert it into machine language, like binary language that the computer can understand. And then it would save that binary language as a separate file, and you'd run that file, and it would already be in the translated language, so it would run nice and fast. BASIC was typically interpreted. However, there were BASIC compilers out, but even then, even if you compiled the BASIC into machine language, it wasn't the most optimal way to do it. So I'm looking at Trevor's description of Time Salvo, and I remember the several games that I played in one sitting and just being blown away by it and thinking, and this was done in basically a homebrew version of BASIC, too. <laughs> so it's amazing what you can do with like what's... Uh, from what I hear, a very easy tool to learn how to use, especially if you've ever programmed before. Thanks again, Trevor. That was awesome to read. Cousin Vinny says, this game gives you a lousy first impression. Five hours later, I was trying to get to level six like my life depended on it. It has obvious patterns and strategies that you can easily pick up on, but saving the humans is the only way to score significant points. I also really like the best of the Twitch game villains vibe featuring a cast of baddies from Robotron, Berserk, and Space Invaders. Dig it. Very addictive, very fun, slap yourself in the face, buy this damn game, Funkmaster V. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Cousin Vinny. And uh, I don't know, I, I didn't have a lousy first impression at all. I was thinking, ooh, this is, because I never played Crossfire. So I was thinking, ooh, this is really cool. Oh, look, uh, to me, I thought it was like a, a Robotron sequel, actually. <laughs> and I was really digging it myself. But uh, yeah, excellent thoughts there, uh, Funkmaster V, Cousin Vinny. S. Ramirez 2008 says, a great game that incorporates elements from two of my favorites, Crossfire and Robotron. I love that it supports the Atari Vox, but I mostly select two-stick mode 
uh, with the Ed Lydon Super Twin 78, which means that I have to set aside the Atari Vox. Time Salvo has excellent theme music, characters, and overall gameplay, a great addition to everyone's 7800 library. Oh, totally agree with you. One suggestion I have, Estramir's 2000. I haven't actually tried this yet. I don't know why. Uh, have you tried maybe using a splitter in your second port? Uh, there are some nine-pin splitters that will work with the 7800 and 2600, of course. And um, I, I, you know what? I'm going to try that myself. Uh, although, quite honestly, I... I personally don't do any better with two joysticks than I do with just one joystick and a fire button on this game. But uh, maybe that's something you can try. Put a splitter in your Player 2 controller port and have um, your um, Ed Lydon Super Twin in one of the split ends, I guess, and the Atari Vox in the other. And uh, that might help you get the best of both worlds right there. Oh, and something that's worth mentioning in the thread is that uh, Atari Age user Good Times said, this one caught my attention based on the box alone. Is it your game? And I think he was addressing me because he quoted my actual original post in the in the message. Like, and, I, and I just couldn't help but laugh because like, no, I, I don't know how to do games, at least not yet. And even if I did, there's no way it would ever be as good as Time Salvo. Because I think I mentioned this before, but I wouldn't even know where to begin programming artificial intelligence of enemies moving about a maze and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's if that ever happens, that I ever produce a game that has any kind of like fire at the enemies or avoid the enemies, um, it's going to be a long time coming. But everybody who contributed to uh, the feedback for this episode, thank you so much. It was great to hear from all of you. And I really appreciate the time you took. Time Salvo, everybody. A game I highly, highly recommend, especially if you were a fan of Crossfire, the computer game. This game is just so much fun. Absolutely. There's, as I always do, when I talk about a game that's currently available for sale, I put a link to its sale page in the show notes. So check it out. Uh, Then again, a lot of you are probably Atari Age users anyway, and you probably know exactly where to go. And, uh, of course, I offer a huge thank you to the following people who have uh, supported this podcast monetarily. Richard Grounds, Ed Ladden Controllers, Jimmy G, Gray Defender, Kyle Etter, and Richard Valdez. Thank you so much, folks. Oh, and I mentioned in the previous episode that the uh, money that I got from Patreon for this podcast went to NAMI Greater Houston. On September 18th, I got a letter from NAMI Greater Houston thanking people for their donations, and it started off, Dear Podcaster. So uh, this must be a common thing that a lot of podcasts are doing, so that's that's cool to know. Anyway, hey, I got to talk about the usual boilerplate stuff. If you wish to become a financial supporter of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash homebrew78. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. You can send me an email at homebrew78 at fab4it.com, and fab4it is spelled F-A-B, the number 4, it.com. Whether you have suggestions for the podcast, just general comments, whether you want to provide your own thoughts on a particular game, and I also take audio as well. So we've only had one audio submission so far in 20 episodes. Isn't that crazy? By the way, if you uh, wish to go to the show notes page, that is homebrew78.fab4it.com on the web. Twitter handle is homebrew78. YouTube channel is homebrew7800. 
Next episode, episode number 21, we're going to go back to the world of one Robert DiCrescenzo, and we're going to talk about another brand new game, or at least a newly released on Atari Age game, I should say, and that's Super Circus Atari Age. Super Circus Atari Age. So, everybody, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. I really do appreciate all the feedback I get, and uh, it's been a terrible, terrible time for people in hurricane zones. And in fact, I did hear from a regular contributor of the show, Trek MD, who's always provided some great, great feedback, great contributions to this podcast. He says, I'm still dealing with issues from the storm, so I'm not likely going to be able to send anything on time. Seriously, Trek MD and anybody else who's dealing with any kind of disasters right now, please, please, please just do what you have to do. Don't worry about this podcast right now. Just if your life is a mess, put it back together. Help your families, help your friends. And uh, when you get a free moment or two, you know, enjoy whatever it is you enjoy, whether it be playing games, uh, making music, you know, shooting hoops, whatever, or contributing to this podcast, whatever. But uh, just do whatever you have to do. Be good to each other. Be good to yourself. And of course, be good to these hardworking homebrew developers and give them the support they deserve. And uh, again, thanks again, everybody. And I can't wait to talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Ho, ho, ho! Happy Easter! Here are 7,800 Easter eggs for your Easter enjoyment. Now be good, boys and girls, and don't listen to these unless you want spoilers. Ho, ho, ho! Happy Easter! Actually, I don't know if saying that Time Salvo has an Easter egg would be appropriate. To me, I would think it's more like a Christmas present. Um, Follow me, if you will. On July 10th, an Atari Age user named Mr. Beefy posted a picture of his gameplay with the um, caption, if you will, of... Um, I'm suddenly feeling festive. And why was he saying that? Well, because from the picture that he posted, uh, the blocks that make up the grid turned into what appear to be Christmas trees, and there's a Santa Claus character on the screen. Disco Dr. Bones, another Atari Age user, also figured it out, and uh, he also posted a picture as well. And here's the thing. Mike had asked people to not make it public how to trigger the Easter egg yet. However, I did get his blessing to reveal it for this episode. So thank you, Mike. But uh, before I do, I just want to talk a little bit more about the uh, Easter egg Christmas present, whatever you want to call it. But once you trigger that Easter egg, you cannot untrigger it, at least without turning off the machine and starting from scratch. I asked Mr. Beefy personally, like, how do you trigger this thing? So here's how you trigger the Easter egg, the Christmas present, whatever you want to call it. At the beginning of a level, when the enemies enter the screen, when they come down the right side and the left side, you have to shoot them as they are trying to get to their starting point. And if you shoot all of them before they get to their starting point, that is what triggers the Easter egg. So big thanks to uh, Mr. Beefy for helping me out with that. And of course, thanks to Mike Sarna, not only for giving me his blessing to uh, talk about the Easter egg in this podcast, but also for making such an amazing game. And thank you all for listening. 
Happy Easter, Merry Christmas, Christ is risen, whatever you want to say. Talk to you again in about two weeks.